Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. As always, this episode was brought to us by our phenomenal sponsors. We could not make the show happen without them. Please go check them out and support them. Seeds Here Now, your number one shop for all the best genetics, all the hottest breeders, and a guarantee on satisfaction, not just germination. Why would you go anywhere else? They're promising you're going to have a good grow because they only stock breeders. They know and trust. Likewise, in order to evaluate your genetics, you need to ensure your plants are of optimal health and happiness. And in order to do this, we recommend you check out our friends at Coppet Biological Systems. They have all the latest predators and technology to keep your garden happy and healthy, exploding with growth and achieving its pinnacle performance. Please check out their Athipar-M or their Spidex Vital, two phenomenal predatory technologies designed to be implemented in the cannabis setting that are going to help your garden to remain happy, healthy and productive. Likewise, check out our good friends at Promix. With their phenomenal product, Promix Connect, you now have access to the highest quality mycorrhizae available. With more guaranteed spore count than any other product, you can ensure that your plants are getting the highest degree of nutrient uptake, mycorrhizal symbiotic relationships, and all of the benefits that flow on from that, including increased yield, increased resin, increased vigor, growth rates. It's all there. You know mycorrhiza. Get the best in the game. Promix Connect, guys. You can't go wrong. Finally, shout out to our friends at Charlie's Cannabis. These guys are the best in Oklahoma. Family and veteran-owned, small batch, craft-produced flour. They're now producing their own rocket free rolls as well as concentrates. All in-house, single source. You can be sure no materials passing from one person to another, no dodgy PM stuff going on here. Just the absolute pinnacle of small-scale craft-produced product. Please check out please check out Charlie's Cannabis if you're based in Oklahoma. I guarantee you'll be blown away with the quality of their products. And last but not least, the Patreon gang. We love you guys so much. Thank you for your support. You truly help make the show happen. If you would like to help ensure that episodes continue to happen, please go over to the Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast and consider signing up. In return, you'll get early access to additional content, unheard interviews, giveaways, Discord access and so much more. Please check out the Patreon. On this episode, guys, we have the one and only Ed Rosenthal. The Ganja Guru, the man who paved the way for many of us, and just an all-round lovely, knowledgeable guy to chat with. Ed was able to swing by, talk about his newest book that's dropping soon, The Cannabis Grower's Handbook, as well as old history, culture, law, and so much more. Let's get into it. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. And on today's episode, we are joined by one of the biggest names in the industry, a true pioneer who wrote the Marijuana Grow Guide back in the late 70s with Mel Frank, someone with a plethora of publications since then, including the big Book of Buds series, Beyond Buds, Ask Ed, and so much more. A huge welcome to the guru of ganja, Ed Rosenthal. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. The first question I love to ask our guests these days, what have you been smoking on recently? Uh, I've been smoking some G4 and then a uh, proprietary variety of a friend of mine, J27. That's pretty good as well. That's uh, 
In fact, that's my favorite. Uh, it's uh, very socializing and upbeat. And G4 tends to be that way as well. Nice. Would you say that in general you prefer more sort of uplifting varieties over the relaxing ones? Well, you know, uh, uplifting and relaxing are not mutually uh, exclusive. So does, something can be uplifting and not make you nervous or paranoid, and those, those are the kinds of uplifting. But, you know, everything depends upon mood. There are times... If you want, if you're, if it's evening, you probably don't want, wouldn't want to smoke something, you know, that's too uh, upbeat. So you want something a little more relaxing. And there are a lot of, a lot of wonderful indicas that, that have that. One of the interesting things about what you just mentioned about your friend's proprietary blend is it, it got me thinking. I read on your website recently, you wrote a nice article about Paradise Seeds. And one of the things that stood out to me was Sensi Star. It was such an amazing commercial hit. And it was one of those strains where they never released the genetics behind it. And it got me wondering, do you think that we're going to see more things like what your friend's done where there's sort of proprietary genetics? Well, there's a way of solving that problem, and there are these uh, firms that uh, uh, do genetic mapping. So you could send in a, a, a sample, and they could place where it is on this genetic map. So, uh, so though, send, so though Paradise hasn't released re released it, anybody could send in uh, a sample of it, and then get. get see where it is on the genetic map. Yeah, certainly the technology today is fantastic in that regard. I guess more from like the commercial success point of view, do you think that that sort of thing would fly or do you think growers are so like pedantic about what am I growing? I want to know the lineage or do you think like it could work commercially? I think that it all depends where you are in either the industry or the hobby. And... Um, do you really have to know the progenitors if you have a high quality uh, bud? Does it really matter to most people? I don't think so. Yeah, certainly a good quality bud is uh, reign supreme, doesn't it? You know what else about good, good quality buds? They're more popular than any politician. When, whenever they, there's an initiative in, in the United States for, for marijuana, and you see the politicians, 58, 46 or something. And even in Oklahoma, the most conservative state, it, uh, medical won by 70%. That's why politicians hate it. It's more popular than they are. <laughs> That's a good way of viewing it. I hadn't thought about it like that. I like that a lot. So... I, I wanted you to take me back if possible. What was your first experience with cannabis? Um, you know, that was a long time ago. And uh, what, when I met cannabis, within a very short time, I knew it was going to be a great friend and ally and that it would be a long-term relationship. And it's lasted any of uh, my, uh, my romantic relationships. That's a good way to view it. I like that as well. Yeah, true friend. <laughs> so when was it 
that you decided you wanted to dedicate yourself and your life to cannabis law reform and to just cannabis in general? Well, there was a specific incident. I was hitching, hitchhiking from Florida to um, my home in New York. And I had in my suitcase a bamboo pipe that uh, we smoked, uh, that somebody gave me and we smoked out of once. And while hitchhiking, I was picked up by the police and they searched the suitcase and they charged me with possession and all kinds of other things. And um, we went to trial and the judge said to the cop, I don't want to ever see a... uh, I don't ever want to see a case like this in this courtroom ever again. Really wise judge. And that was before the drug war really was hitting, was hitting its hardest. So then um, I was leaving the courtroom with my mother and my aunt on either side of me. And the, uh, so the sergeant who arrested me and who testified against me, Sergeant Edwards of Bowling Green, Virginia, he uh marijuana people have a lot to thank him for. Well, he came and stood in the way of our path and put out his hand to shake hands with me or something like that. And I said to him, get out of my way, pig. And my aunt, who's a very polite person, said, Eddie, you shouldn't talk to the officer like that. And I said, but Anna Elsie, he tried to put me in prison. For, and she said, she looked at the cop and she said, officer, could you please remove yourself from that path? But that was it. The making of an activist. But I mean, I was active in it before, but not the way that that got me. So... Yeah. And, you know, and I really felt that cannabis was an ally from the very first time that I, uh, that I used it. And so, um, I mean, but he, he, uh, he confirmed what I should be doing. Yeah, I love that sentiment. You know, we, we all have a lot to thank that officer for yeah. uh, getting the, the stone rolling on that one. So how did you progress from that point up until you first started to learn about growing and you sort of thought to myself, God, I've got to write about this? Well, I had always been interested in horticulture and had taken classes in it when I was a kid. So I was not, I was familiar with plants and growing plants and growing plants indoors. So um, cannabis was just another plant. I mean, well, it is because it's a green plant and it observes the same uh, natural uh, laws that uh, other green plants do. And so, so I had a spare bedroom in my apartment and I decided to convert that spare bedroom into a grow space. And that's how it started. And then I wanted to make little grow tents for people to grow their own. And I got some publicity from a newspaper uh, 
no longer was in existence for a long time called Village, Village Voice. And then um, at the same time, they had an article about how to grow by this other, uh, uh, well, they, well, um, so they gave me a lot of publicity. And then I got some publicity in Rolling Stone. And at the same time, they had an article on how to grow by another fellow. And they asked if we would like to meet. And when he, you know, we both decided to meet each other. And then we decided to write a book about how to grow indoors. And that's what we did. And then that book was a great success. And after that book came out, you know, if, if you're success, if you enjoy doing something and you're successful at it, you tend to stay doing it. So, and I really like being around the plant and being in, in the whole, every part of, of that milieu around the plant, including, and cultivation is a big part of that. Yeah, hugely. And I mean, what a meeting of the minds, you know, yourself and Mel Frank. One of the questions that was really itching my brain when I was thinking about our chat today was when you were writing this book, did you have any sort of inkling that it was going to cause this mammoth, you know, change in the scene and inspire millions? Or did it just seem like, you know, sort of the average book? Well, you know, um, people's goals change, and this was a long time ago, but I assured my author that we would be able to make about $200 a week each, which at that time um, was a lower middle-class salary or something from writing that book. And little did I realize that it would be much more than that. And that was the first book, Indoor Outdoor Marijuana Growers Guide. And it was a it was a thin book. And then we wrote the thicker book, the Marijuana Growers Guide, that people recognize all the time. And that that book was um, that book was a huge success because it um, was more scientific than any of the other books. And had more substance to it. And so um, I've stayed on that path. Yeah, fantastic. And out of curiosity, back, you know, when you were first writing it, what sort of strains were you growing back then? Did they have names? Well, where we were in New York City, it was all either Colombian or Mexican or Panamanian. It was all these imports. So... The first plants um, that I grew were from uh, seeds in, in imported marijuana. And the, on the West Coast, there was more of a culture, and we became acquainted with it when both of us moved, Mel Frank and I both moved to, uh, uh, to um, first Berkeley, then Oakland. And that was a different milieu that, where there was already breeding going on and uh, uh, the skunk man uh, 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 the fellow who invented skunk number one and some other varieties he was in the area as well and, and other people 
Yeah, it sounds like you were in the hot spot when you got to California. I'd be interested to quickly ask you, did you have any personal interactions with Sam the Skunk Man? He's a very mysterious figure in the scene. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Both Mel and I were good friends with him. And then when he moved to... um, uh, When he moved to... uh, To... uh, Holland, we saw each other quite a bit when I was over. I haven't seen him much in recent years. Yeah, yeah, I think he has been a little more active in the past than he is recently. Well, if we fast forward a little bit, your newest book has just been released, The Cannabis Growers Handbook, which our listeners can purchase from your website, edrosenthal.com. So first of all, huge congratulations on the new book. And secondly... What sort of topics does the book go into? What can people expect to be able to read about? Well, it follows the template of the last book, of Marijuana Grower's Handbook, but it goes, it covers things in a different way. For instance, um, it covers light in terms of uh, the uh, radiance of the light, you know, how, how intense it is in terms, in more scientific terms. And before, for instance, indoors, we would say a 60 watts or 600 watts or so many watts. But, but instead of using a, an input measurement, for instance, we use uh, the actual light measurement. And then there, everything about the book has been upgraded. And we have, uh, we have uh, a lot on different ways of growing, su- sustainability, uh, changes in you know changes in scientific thought it's it's not like it was updated it was totally rewritten it's a major difference there yeah what a fantastic answer i was going to actually ask you that question you know what was the difference between the cannabis growers handbook and the marijuana growers handbook but there you go you answered it for me A perfect segue into the next question is that, you know, many technologies have evolved over the time since your first book was published in the late 70s. And I think in recent years, most notably, the lighting technology has really come a long way with the advent of LEDs and whatnot. What's your preferred lighting source at the moment? Or do you prefer outdoor? I like to grow. So, uh, um, you know, it depends on the area. For instance... I'm helping some people in Jamaica, and for and a lot of the uh, companies there um, are using greenhouses all the time, and I don't think that that that's as useful as uh, mostly growing outdoors in that situation. But then, if you're up in Canada, it, in order to extend the season, you're going to want to grow in a greenhouse. On the other hand. I know people who grow outdoors in the Arctic and they have about 95 days of, of uh, favorable weather and they, uh, they grow within that period of time. They, they start indoors. They used to start indoors and put plants out. I think they still do, but now they're using autoflowers, which makes their life a lot easier. But so you have to, you have to, there's, one has to look at what the situation is. If 
whether you have space outdoors, whether you have greenhouse space, indoor space, but whatever, you know, growing is, is a lot of fun. And also, you know, I've mentioned this before, and it's in the last book, in this book, that it is a warning that using marijuana may not be habit-forming, but growing it's addictive. And so anybody who just puts that seed in the ground, soon enough they'll be addicted and they'll always have a plant in their life. Here, here. I can I can certainly vouch for that on a personal level. Very addicting indeed. And heck, it's a one of our other guests said uh, cannabis is a gateway to just gardening in general. So I thought that was cool too. That's true. You know, I, I've met a number of people who uh, they started with uh, cannabis, and then uh, before you know it, they were uh, working in one uh, agricultural area or another, not necessarily. Uh, with cannabis, but you know what, cannabis, you know what, marijuana is a gateway drug too. Well, hash, hash. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I hadn't heard that. I like that. But but you know, in New York City, uh, uh, you know where they have well, all over the United States is this big opioid problem. But in New York City, they said that if you have a prescription for opiates, any kind of opiate, you can use it to go to a marijuana dispensary. So you know how they used to say marijuana leads to these hard drugs? Well, what they're saying now is, if you have hard drugs, how about trying pot? <laughs> so. <laughs> I like that a lot. That's good. That's good. But it's true. You know, I'm, the, that, the, it's the weirdest thing, right? We knew that all along, right? We knew that everybody had known people who had serious drug problems who solved them, but with marijuana. But but the um, the um, medical professionals just could not they they just couldn't tolerate that, you know. So, uh, give them give them some other pill that's addictive instead, you know that their policy. Oh, no, that's not addictive, but you better take it every day. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite shocking when you read about some of the early, you know, pharma reports about the, uh, you know, opioids like Percocet and all that. And they were like, oh, it's just, it's not addictive. <laughs> well, um, you know, the, the people who perpetrated that, their corporations are coming to agreements to pay back a lot of the, some of the money that they, I feel that they stole from the American people. But the problem is that the, that the people who perpetrated it, they're handling it corporately and they should be handling it as a criminal matter. And these people knew that a certain percentage of their, uh, of their victims would die from it. So they should be charged with, with, with some sort of homicide or murder charge. And you know what? Any district attorney in the United States could do it. They're not bound to any agreements that the government made. They could just charge any of these people criminally and see, and see where that goes. They, they, I mean, if you put, like, you, they, in both Australia and the United States, it's serious criminal penalties for, for murder, right? But is it not for executives? Is that it? They get a get out of free jail? I, 
I don't think they should. Yeah, hugely, hugely. And I, I was thinking to myself, even if they pay adequate compensation, whatever that is, who knows? They, there's still, yeah, this this pandemic of people addicted to opioids and like how do you clean that up? It's, it's a tough one. But I guess while we're on the topic of sort of drugs and the effect on society, I'd be interested in hearing your opinion on it seems as though federal legalization of cannabis in the United States is becoming a possibility. I know that there's been some back and forth from Biden as to whether he wants to do it. But I guess in general, you could say it looks like we're getting closer to the war on drugs, at least for cannabis ending. Do you see that in the future or do you think it's still too hard to say? Mm. Well, I, you know, um, in the year 2000, um, the, uh, the, the Democratic president the presidential candidate um, who used pot, was familiar with pot, went to Grateful Dead concerts with his wife, right? Said that marijuana had no medical use. And, uh, of course, he lost. And uh, then uh, uh, Hillary Clinton refused to endorse cannabis on any level, like saying, well, maybe we should investigate medical use. And, you know, she won, lost by a few votes, supposedly. She, she, would have, uh, she would have won if she had just said, we should, you know, we should legalize medical use federally. So there's no reason to believe that the Democrats won't shoot themselves in the foot again by refusing to, to go positive on the issue. Now they have on a local level, but not on a national level. And basically it seems to me everybody's predicting tremendous losses for Biden. And the only way out of it is marijuana legalization. It solved so many people's problems. It could solve the problems of the Democratic Party. Yeah, hugely, hugely. And hopefully we can see that happen in the coming years. I just want to loop back for a moment. Uh, a few questions ago, you were talking about, you know, people in the Arctic with limited time frames for growing and just in general, you know, people in sort of more specific grow environments. We've had guests in the past talk about how autoflowers might be a good solution to some of these interesting climates that have short windows of you know, favorable weather and whatnot. Do you, what's your thoughts on autos in general? And do you think we're going to see them increasingly become more popular? Well, they, uh, when I was talking about the Arctic, that's what people were using because if, if they didn't use autoflowers, they would have had, they were growing some acreage. If they weren't using autoflowers, they would have had to do light deprivation and that would have been arduous and costly. And so, you know, I, I've never uh, smoked an autoflower that I knew was an autoflower that I thought was a super duper high. But um, I think that they would be very good for concentrates. And, uh, and, Let's see, something or nothing, let's see. So I could have something that's okay, you know, that I could concentrate, or 
I could have nothing. Let's see. It's a hard one there. <laughs> that's that's interesting you you raise that question because one of the it's sort of not related to autos, but that underlying principle is at play. We're in Australia where being given this medical system, which for a long time was very restrictive and non-functional at all, but basically the idea is you're never going to be able to grow at home. They're just not going to allow it. But you can buy like sort of mid-tier products from one of the registered dispensaries. Like it's not a dispensary, they're just producers and you get the bud from the pharmacy. So the question sort of becomes, do you see that right to grow yourself in order to get access to the mid-tier government stuff or do you hold out and sort of grow your own and be like no i'm not making that compromise like i want to be able to grow at home where would you sit on that one if there hadn't been home growers violating the law in the united states the law would never have changed so <clears throat> i think that People in Australia should take a hint from them and, and overgrow the government. As much as the government tries to stamp out, you know, and NSW is, although they try to stamp it out and they have those campaigns and everything, but they seem to supply Sydney. Okay. So, I mean, it's the equivalent of Humboldt here in California. Now, here's the thing when it becomes legal, those people in Nimbin will be sadly disappointed because that's not really an agricultural area. And it's very tropical and has very high humidity. So it's not the ideal place to grow. And so I think that um, what's happened in the United States is more of it, it's growing, when it's being grown outdoors, it's being grown on agricultural land. I, I once uh, I met a fellow in Nimbin who uh, took me up to his garden that was in um, in one of the national parks in NSW, and it was exhaust. You know, his route was exhausting. It was just ex I mean, totally exhausting. And he'd have ten plants here and twenty plants there, and he figured that even if the government saw the plants, they weren't going to grapple down, you know, down from the helicopter to, to get that. So th that totally changes with legalization. And one negative thing about legalization is this, that as it is now, to, to a great extent, the money stays in the within the community. You know, you're buying, from, you're, you're part of that community of consumers and small-time dealers and growers and, you know, you have more commonality than that. Maybe um, you have uh, cultural commonalities also. But what's happened in the United States and Canada is that it's become legal. They have become billionaires from this, many, a number of billionaires. So obviously the money is flowing out, out of the community. I mean, it's a larger community, so you're getting more middle-class people into it. But still, there's money flowing out of that. You know, that money isn't circulating as much. So that's the negative side of legalization. And so somebody asked me, well, how do you deal with that? And I said, oh, it's simple. Make it illegal. Some creative solutions there. I like it. I like it. I mean, 
on the topic of legalization, um, you know, since recreational laws have passed in the states, we see a wide diversity and volume of clones being swapped and traded, certainly more so than back, you know, in the, the Prop 62 days or 64 days. One of our Canadian guests who was on the show recently, Kevin Cullum, he commented on how since there's all this trading of clones and genetics, he's certainly noticed an increase in the emergence of the cannabis-specific aphid. And I guess I'm sort of wondering, from your point of view, do you think that growers need to be quite mindful of the fact that with this increase in volume of genetic material being traded, we could very well inadvertently generate more cannabis-specific pests and things that are more resilient to the more milder forms of pest treatment? Well, that's happened. The, the, some of the new races of uh, of uh, uh, powdery mildew, uh, you know, are, are much more dangerous than older races of it. And I think that either cannabis specific or may have evolved on. On, I think they transferred from um, hops to cannabis, and then now they've gotten more virulent. And you have the rush at night, and that, you know, that that's, I'm not saying it's specific to cannabis, but it really feasts on it. And so um, th- that, it, that always happens. It's, you know, as I said, can, well, when you're dealing with the plant issue of cannabis, it's just like any other plant and follows the same rules. And that's going to, and, same thing in the industry. There's no way to stop the spread of these uh, of, of these uh, diseases and pests, parasites. Yeah, sure. I mean, you just touched on it. You know, things coming from hops. The hop latent virus is like a very you know popular sort of buzzword in the community at the moment. I think I read an article that said it has knocked off like up to a billion dollars off the USA market value over the past few years just due to like plants underperforming from it and whatnot. How do you think we overcome what is sort of comparable to like the COVID of plants? Like, do you think there's a risk it could ramp up to pandemic proportions where like just all plants have it? Or do you think it's probably not that serious? Mm -hmm. It, it could become serious. I, I don't really know that much about it, it about uh, that particular viroid, but I think that um, that it's hard for, to develop plants with a resistance to virus. Much harder than, let's say, for, to fungus or certain bacteria. So it's a very it's very serious. It, it also depends how um, how uh, how uh, effective it is at um, at um, spreading. I have, uh, although uh, people outdoors, I know that a number of farmers have really suffered from it, and I don't know what the solution is. There, there isn't, you know, it's not like a fungus where you can say, oh, spray this or do this or practice a different cultural technique. As we know, they've 
you know, you can be living a clean, healthy life and still get get a virus, right? So I, we, um, I know that I, I, there are people that I know who said, oh, I'm, you know, taking good care of myself and um, avoiding any way of getting it. And one of them was in ICU for six weeks. And, you know, but he, up until the point where he got it, he was sure that he would be able to resist it because of his healthful lifestyle. And I don't think viruses respect that in humans or in plants. Yeah, certainly some some wise words to heed there. I mean, if we just talk about general pests and pathogens, I I see in all the grow stores I go to your zero tolerance product, which is, you know, really good general strategy for pest management. I'm wondering what are some of the general strategies you advocate for growers to help keep just general bugs at bay? Well, it's it's um you know, it's isolation strategies, especially indoors, because in indoors and in greenhouses, once an, in, an insect or a uh, disease gets in there, it, it, there isn't the, uh, the natural resistance that nature provides in that situation. So, so the main... Uh, Main things I would do is the prevention method, which is isolating the, the growing area and the cultural area from the rest of the world. And that's done through, the, you know, there are a lot of things. First of all, change of clothing, hand nets, beard nets, uh, having people in actually in the garden as little as possible. So if you have a garden technique which requires constant care by humans, you might consider getting a different technique because there's a good possibility if when something occurs that it's occurred because of it was carried in by humans. And then, you know, of course, isolation of uh, um, isolation of any new plants coming in, uh, you know, uh, if you're importing plants, uh, also uh, preventive spraying. Um, then, then you get to the point of uh, uh, when I say spraying, I'm not necessarily talking about pesticides as much as with uh, beneficial uh, bacteria and beneficial fungi, and then um, uh, doing inspections all the time, isolating any plants that that seem to be diseased, Get, getting rid of any plants that aren't performing well. Let's say, to, you know, every once in a while you get a plant that has failure to thrive, remove it. Don't, don't wait to see how it does in three weeks. So um, those are some of the, some of the things. Fantastic. And I've got a bit of a tough question that I give to all our guests because I think the answer is we're still looking for an answer. But if someone came to you and said, hey, look, I'm in week five of flower and I've just noticed a pest infestation, what sort of strategies do you think people can use in those situations? Or do you feel like it's, it's a bit too far and anything you do is going to be pretty detrimental to the crop? Well, it, it depends what the pest is. You know, it really depends what the pest is. Uh, 
And it depends. Um, the second thing is it depends how uh, widespread the pest is, you know, within the how big a population it has. So you might just remove a few plants. If it's in a very specific area, you might remove a few plants or, uh, and um, then um, there might be, you might be able to use some sort of bacterial or fungal spray against the pests. Uh, that's another possibility. I, I wouldn't um, advise on uh, bringing in, um, uh, bringing in uh, beneficial uh, insects or uh, other creatures like that because they usually take too long to develop a, a, a population where they can handle the uh, the, the pest. So um, I would go with um, with uh, also washing. You know, if like let's say you were in week six or something, you may be able to, um, and you see a population, you might be able to wash the population off. That's that's. You know, it's not going to eliminate it, but it's going to bring down the stress on the plant. Yeah, really, really great words there. That's something which I've always say to people myself. You know, people always buy predator bugs and I'm like, before you release, I'm like, just try to get a damp cloth and like wipe off the majority of the bugs you can see, right? Like it's only going to help. But I guess, yeah, not, not as commonly known as maybe we might expect. Well, especially outdoors, you know, if you're if it's a sunny day outdoors and you have mites, you know, the best thing that you know you're not going if you have a lower population to control, it's easier to do it. So the first thing to do is to get as much as many of them off as possible. You know, get rid of you know, and um, also I didn't mention herbal sprays like zero tolerance, but but herbal sprays are pretty good. They'll knock down population. Not, nothing eliminates it. You're not going to eliminate your, your problem, that problem, but you are going to get it under extreme control. And in a lot of greenhouses that are, that are open, you know, they're constantly getting reinfested from outside, especially in midsummer, mid and late summer. So, uh, so people might take preventive action. For instance, um, uh, people I know use uh, take the zero take zero tolerance and dilute it down and fog it into their greenhouses a couple of times a week, and that also repels insects. Any any herbal spray will do that. Yeah, some great advice there. So if we change topics for a moment. I, I really enjoyed reading your Beyond Buds book a few years ago. At the time, I remember thinking, this is really sort of groundbreaking because there really isn't another mainstream book for growers to learn more about concentrates and like the very finest specific points you touch on, you know, producing and consuming them. It got me wondering, overall, are you more of a flower guy or a concentrate guy? Um, you know... Gee, I, I love cannabis so much. <laughs> uh, uh, it's the quality of the product. So I, 
I don't like low quality concentrates nor buds, but love the high quality, the high end. That's that's a good answer. I really like that one. And as a follow up, we've seen a lot of uh, rise of. Uh, the common consumer, i.e. people who don't live and breathe cannabis, but maybe just enjoy it every once in a while. There's been a really big uptake of this sort of consumer, especially around the use of like vape pens, really easily accessible devices like that. And it has me thinking, where do you see the future of cannabis consumption going across the whole population? Do you think we're going to see more concentrate style ingestion or flowers will always be supreme? I don't know. It, I, I, I think that it will float back and forth um, with different, both with, with different technologies and just trends, you know. But uh, people always like novelty. So if, you have, if there hasn't been much action with uh, but at some point, people will go back to it. You know, everything, everything in life is retro. Now, I'm not just talking about, but you know, but I'm talking about life. It re- everything repeats with a little bit of change. Yeah, isn't that the truth? So one of our viewers submitted questions was they they wanted to know uh, do you, do you still combust cannabis these days? I think a lot of people as they get a bit older they they move away from combustion. And look at that, right on cue. He hits a hammer. I love it. <laughs> well, I would never do that. It, I would, why would people do that when they can take cunning damage? I mean, why would people, you know, burn cannabis? I, I just can't understand how people would do that. Oh, <laughs> uh, look, it was like you were ready for that one. You hit it out of the park. <laughs> that's brilliant that's brilliant so likewise if you check out edrosenthal.com you can see there's a really touching tribute to Frenchie Canoli who sadly passed away not too long ago and it really got the brain juices flowing for me and I was thinking is this the last true hash pioneer we're gonna see you know a lot of people talk about the the fine hash market becoming harder and harder to find good quality products in do you think Frenchie might have been the last of the true hash pioneers? Well, I think that um, the market um, will determine what products are out there. That that you know, it's not it's not theoretical when when people are at the counter. They make a conscious decision about what they they like and so you know as with any consumer product the trends go one way then they go the other way and they go back and forth so i think that they'll there'll be a market there'll always be a market for commissary hash and when there's a market there'll always be somebody there who is willing to make it and I think that he did lead the way in many areas. He had left a lot of videos 
and uh, you did leave an appreciation in people for fine quality hashish. Hugely, hugely. And I mean, while we're on the topic of the market, one of the common discussions I'm having with a lot of smaller growers at the moment is how they feel like with the opening up of new markets, like say Oklahoma, for example, as well as just the existing markets growing, really feels to them like there's a bit of a race to the bottom in regards to pricing. And a lot of them are getting quite concerned about how they will continue to to make a livelihood from this um, if prices continue to go down. Do you have any advice for people who might feel like they're in that position? Well, I want to take it in another way. I think it's really good that prices are down for the consumer. I think, and frankly, I'm more interested in the consumer than uh, big corporations. And um, as far as prices being down, well, you know, the only reason prices were up was because of the risk factor factor dealing with um, uh, dealing with uh, the legality of of the product. So that so farmers who were growing it were making an economic profit from that risk factor, and that that risk factor, uh, you know, that that was like a price support system. For instance, let's say in Australia, the government said it was going to firebomb one wheat farm. One wheat farm in all of Australia. All the farmers would get out of wheat, wouldn't they? Wheat prices would go up, right? So anybody who was still in wheat would be doing pretty well. Well, marijuana farmers had that for 40 years. So they were being, one way or another, they were being paid for the risk they were taking, not just for their farming ability. So you ever hear any songs about how wonderful it is to be a farmer, or are they all laments? Sadly, no. (laughs) You know, like, and you know, the farmers go, well, when you have a good crop, the prices are down, and when you when the crop is bad, the prices are up. But why do you think the prices are up? It's because of the you know because there's a shortage of supply. So nobody said marijuana farming has to be profitable. And frankly, what I'd like to see is some of the uh, big corporations doing the farming to see whether they really have the metal to, to, to do it, whether the people that they hire really have the ability to grow quality product or not. And in a free market like that, though, I think that a lot of the big corporations will be left behind. Yeah, yeah, look, I can understand that. And hopefully with that scale, you know, they can sort of bring the price point down and make it accessible. I guess as a sort of general question, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on whether you felt the change from the old medical system to the new recreational system in California has been an overall net positive or do you feel like there's been pros and cons? Well, the big net positive is fewer people in jail. And by by any uh, by any measure that any any way that you want to measure it, 
that's a net positive. That has to make it net positive. Could it be? Could it be a better system? It could be. But here's the other part of it. Half the pot being sold in California, it's estimated, or more than half of it, is uh, not coming from uh, registered farms. So the reason why prices have gone down so much in California is this. That, for instance, you know, Mendocino and Humboldt marijuana, it's outdoor marijuana. And it's grown in an area where the weather is not really agricultural weather, not in the way that you really like it. So indoor and uh, and greenhouse marijuana is considered by most Californians a preferred quality. So most of the humble material traveled east. That's why... Humboldt got such a good reputation. People in New York would say to Californians, oh, look, I have some beautiful Humboldt weed. And, you know, a Californian would look at it and say, well, uh, why don't you try some of this instead? (laughs) And and so the Humboldt, it was like export quality. Like it couldn't be sold in California, so we have to export it. So now... All of that weed, um, you know, now that New York is legal and Massachusetts and, you know, all of these states were formerly illegal um, where it was the California pot was filling, uh, filling the, the supply side. Well, now uh, people can grow their own or, and, you know, corporations and farmers are getting into it. So there's not as much market for the Humboldt weed, and that's why those Humboldt and Mendocino weed, that's why those prices have fallen precipitously. So, um, you know, it's a problem, but, you know, nobody said that you have to make a living. I mean, farming, for most farmers who are not farming cannabis, sometimes it's a pretty rough road. And with legalization and the normalization of cannabis, I could see that because, uh, like, prices are falling. What What do you do? You have no control over it. It's a, it's a market doing Yeah, I think sometimes people are quick to lose sight of the fact that, yeah, the trade-off is less people in jail and that is undeniably a, a net positive, no questions there. And, and more people get to use it because not everybody knows somebody who can give them marijuana. And also, medic, it's really good for medical users because they might want something specific. And even, um, well, even if you grow your own tomatoes, you might buy some tomatoes once in a while. That's true, isn't it? Yeah, very few people are entirely self-sufficient, even with the crops they grow. Well, sort of an extension of this topic is the the generalization, uh, or maybe you could even call it gentrification, of the cannabis industry. It's It's a persistent topic that comes up on our show, the idea of how the industry is being morphed to cater more to the casual enthusiast 
as opposed to in the past where you could maybe argue it was more for the growers and the hardcore enthusiasts. And I guess this is most evident by going to dispensaries. You see there's there's a lot of sort of mid to low tier brands, not as many high tier brands anymore. And even some of the events like the Emerald Cup, which are sort of shifting to be more of like a half music festival, half cannabis festival, and not just about breeders selling seeds, for example. Do you feel this shift yourself and do you have any thoughts on how this might play out long-term for the hardcore cannabis community? Well, I think that that community is served by uh, independent dealers. So it's not, it's not that, uh, it's not that that product isn't out and it isn't that people who want it aren't getting it. It's that the, dispensaries and shops are catering more to people who don't have connections and who are casual users. But the, the hardcore, you know, the chronic users, they're usually going to independent dealers because if they're buying because the product is so much cheaper. Yeah. It doesn't make much difference if you're only buying an eighth, you know, a couple, few grams every month or something. But if you're using uh, 10 grams a day, then price does matter. Yeah, hugely. I mean, another related topic that gets brought up in these same conversations is how the market is more largely becoming dictated by the cannabinoid percentage numbers, especially the idea that a larger number is synonymous with better quality. Do you think we need to move away from this? And how might we try to do that? Well, in California, um, most dispensaries, though they're not required to, list the terpene percentages. And so that's become a, a major factor. Both the, both the, um, the cannabinoids, what cannabinoids are in there, and the terpenes. So people are looking at it more holistically. Yeah, hugely, hugely. And uh, we'll touch on terpenes in, in just a moment. I just had one final question around that, which was, do you think that the labs are being honest when they give their testing results? Because we're starting to see results that are, you know, really high 30s, low 40% cannabinoids for like a flower sample. And it makes me wonder, like there's this huge variability do we just need to get a standardized testing model or are some of the labs maybe not quite being as truthful as we might hope? Well, I think there's been, I think among the people that I know who do testing, I think that they want to produce accurate results. But I think more standardization is required. Yeah, certainly, certainly. So recently, we've seen the re-emergence of some really old-school genetics coming really to the forefront of a lot of modern breeders' palates. They're looking to work with things like the NL5 haze with the skunk, even the pure haze, for example. Do you think these varieties are really as good as the current ones or maybe a bit of rose-shaded glasses at play? That's too complex a question. It doesn't seem like it would be. But answering it gets really sticky, so, so to speak, because th there's one thing that, uh, that I'll mention. That years ago, you would sometimes, there'd be a bag of 
cannabis that was so fragrant, it would smell up the room and you'd remove the cannabis from the room, you'd open up the windows and that odor was still there for a while. I haven't experienced anything like that in more than 10, 10, 15 years. There you go. That may be a hint. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you speak with, with older cannabis users, you ask them if they've ever had that experience. And they'll tell you that in, in you know, before the turn of the century, they've had, they had that ex- those experiences. That experience you mentioned, we, we hear other people talk of similar events, specifically often related to the roadkill skunk. Have you ever smelt what you think is the roadkill skunk? Well, there, there are a lot of variations on it, but yeah, where it's actually skunky, yeah. yeah I mean, it's something more that uh, um, uh, people from the, um, uh, the Americas would be familiar with than um, uh, Australians or people in Europe. But yeah. In fact, I. The skunks, skunks come visit my uh, my garden at night every night. Um, there you go. Not, not my marijuana garden, but you know, just where I live. Uh, uh, skunks, opossums. That you know, that's uh, more like some of the uh, animals that you have, or marsupial, the opossum, and uh, raccoons. You don't have raccoons, you know. You know, they, they've made their peace. They're living in cities now, you know. They figured out how to do it. Yeah, they're smart, aren't they? They've adapted. Yeah. While we're on the, the topic of terpenes, you know, as you alluded to a little earlier, terpenes are becoming a more focal part of what people are looking for in high-quality cannabis. However... From my point of view, it still feels like there's a fairly large ambiguity around the language we use. Like I might call it sweet, you might call it floral. Do you think we need to try to get some sort of standardization? And if so, would it be of any benefit to customers or not really? Well, I think better than that would be an actual test. That would, you know, so people wouldn't have to rely on their, on their nose for it. And, um, and as I said, in dispensaries and um, and stores in the U.S. now, uh, the, I mean, in California, they list the, the terpenes and the percentages. So, and people are becoming more familiar with the effects of different terpenes. So, it, it's uh, uh, presenting that information um, is useful to the knowledgeable consumer. This one might be a little bit left of field to answer, but I've had discussions with people in the past and we're trying to figure out what is it that makes a certain strain feel the way it does. One of our past guests said, you know, I've got an Afghani that's 20% THC and a Thai that's 20% THC and they largely smell the same, both sort of mango smelling but obviously one feels like a very sedating sort of feel, one feels very uplifting. And it begs the question, you know, what is it ultimately in your mind that makes us feel like a cannabis is a, a thin leaf variety or a broad leaf variety? Do you have any thoughts on that one? Well, it's like this, you know, your friends who have those two varieties that 
smell the same. So that the chemistry producing the mango odor was probably masking other other terpenes that cause the different effects. And that's why I say the only way to really know what's in it is to test it. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, while we're on the topic, I feel like the Instagram platform itself has done huge, huge work in terms of getting cannabis out to the consumers, at least in Australia. I feel like a lot of people realize there's really good quality bud out there just from seeing it on Instagram and being like, oh, that's possible. The trade-off though is that on Instagram, things can look really good you, you can't smell them or smoke them. So you can really only go off the visuals. And some people criticize this and say, you know, it, it's caused things to shift to things that look good, but maybe don't necessarily have the terpenes to back it up. Have you noticed anything like this? Well, I'm not really in the, um, in the buyer mode. So, so I don't get as affected by things like that, perhaps. So I might not be the right person to answer. No, understandable. I, it's probably been a long time since you've had to purchase some cannabis. Um, I, I purchased some in, in Holland. That's a few years ago. And uh, with a friend, we, we were temporarily out and we went into a greenhouse coffee shop and, you know, we spent about, I don't know, $50 and we got this little bag and the two of us started laughing. <laughs> you know? uh, it was just, really? That, that's $50? That's, yeah. There you go. Times are changing. My my final question sort of related to Instagram is that in the past two years or so, we've, we've really seen a big clamping down of Instagram on cannabis-related businesses, sometimes even banning their accounts. And it feels as though the platform itself of Instagram is quite vital to a lot of brands. It seems like it would be hard to exist without it. So my question is, how do we navigate this space given we're so heavily dependent on it but they're also not necessarily looking to play ball with us as an industry. Well, Amazon said that they're not testing their employees for pot anymore. Well, maybe the maybe the uh, people uh, under the Department of Transportation, maybe truck drivers or something, but in general, they're not going to test their workers. So isn't that one step away from saying Amazon is going to deliver. So, um, and if Amazon does that, then what's Insta Instagram going to do? So I think they're all going to fall in line. But, but you know, those companies have had, uh, you, you know that they uh, earn a good part of their living either off of drugs or, or porn. And yet, you know, they're so uh, straight-laced about, especially about drugs. It's, it, it, you know, if they had uh, 
given a little more support to legalization, we, we'd be much further ahead than, than we are now. It's really a shame that they, you know, it's natural that they should join, you know, to, to help make it legal all over, but, but they haven't been doing that. Yeah. As soon as there's money to be made, they want to get in on it. Yeah, I can understand that. So as legalization rolls out worldwide over the coming years, do you think that we'll see more institutes like the Oaksterdam University sort of pop up around the world? Oh, yes. And I think that there are a few other uh, uh, universities um, like that. There's one in Colorado and I don't know where others are, but there might be one in Michigan. But also, um, uh, colleges and universities are opening up degrees in that. So UC Davis, which is perhaps the best agricultural school in the country, UC Davis has a a curriculum in cannabis. So so that's, that's going to happen as well. And... So now here's what is we hope that they use this particular book as a textbook, Cannabis Growers Handbook, that and uh, it just came out. We're shipping it out to people who pre-ordered. So there it is. I don't think you could go wrong if that's your prescribed textbook. Yeah, I, I think it will be because, you know, we, uh, we had the three co-authors, but we also... Uh, uh, we collaborated with for specific uh, areas, um, hydroponics, nutrients, um, uh, air, air quality. We we uh, we collaborated with university with a lot of professors, university professors, and people in the industry. So though there are three authors listed, there were probably uh, thirty people who uh, also put contributions into the book. So it's more than one person's opinion. Yeah, it sounds sounds quite comprehensive, which is always reassuring. I mean, on the question of sort of getting into growing a bit, I'd be interested to hear what sort of style of growing do you like to do and what do you advocate for? Are you an organics person, a salt, or is it just not really meaningful? Well, uh, you know, it really depends on the situation. But, uh, for instance, uh, this year, uh, well, for the past few years, I've been growing all my tomatoes uh, hydroponically. And I really like, uh, I really like hydroponic growing for indoor and some greenhouse situations because uh, you can there are two things about it uh, that not dealing with the crop or the yield, but the inputs. One is that it really conserves water tremendously. It, uh, the, the amount of water used to produce an ounce of cannabis goes way down when you're growing hydroponic, when you're growing in a sustainable hydroponic system. And then the, the other part about it is that um, uh, it's very change. You can change. You can change the situation really quickly with it. 
for instance, when you go from vegetative to flowering, it becomes very easy to do that when you have a hydroponic system. And they're very easy to set up. And uh, they increase yield usually. And, you know, uh, as I said, I've been growing hydroponic tomatoes and uh, people love them. So. Proofs in the tomato. Yeah. And I have this theory about cultivation, which is this. So, you know, um, so basically during its lifetime, the plant allocates the carbon that it captures from the air. You know, it captures carbon dioxide, that's a carbon that contains a carbon, and then it allocates its use. So let's say, um, so if you, let's say you look at a plant, and if the plant has grown uh, all these branches and leaves and everything, well, in terms of cal carbon allocation for the yield, we're looking at, we're not harvesting the branches or the leaves, we're harvesting the buds, right? So um, what percentage of the carbon is going to bud production and what percent is growing to plant infrastructure? And so when you look at that, you realize that if you grow small plants that don't have much infrastructure, but for instance, single stem plants, then a, a much higher percentage of the carbon that the plant is allocating, is using, is going to bud production. And so I'm, uh, the plant spends a greater proportion of its time in, in bud production as compared with vegetative production. So I'm really into growing these small plants really close together. And one way to do it, you know, like lettuce, you know, like lettuce rafts, growing in like, like they were single stem plants on lettuce rafts. And they won't be uh, about 65 centimeters tall when they're done with no branching. And so the other advantage of that is that there's very uh, low, a very small amount of um, of uh, manicuring. So that's a money saver as well. So that's industrially, that's how I like to grow plants. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, the, the sea of green method, you know, really proven itself over the years. As far as I could tell, there wasn't a ton of people still really doing it. Do you think it's something that's going to get more popular? Well, uh, my writing partner, uh, Rob Flannery and I, we, we uh, have been doing a little bit of, we're, we're planning to do a little bit of consulting on that. And we think that um, the problem for it is you need a really skilled um, uh, manager and uh, not so much staff, but, but management and, and excellent SLP so that everybody knows what's happening because there's a lot of action in that. Because you have, um, if, if, if you're growing columns, which most farmers will do, then you need a large, uh, 
you either have to have a, a good calm supplier or you have to have a large um, uh, mother room to produce the clones and a lot of action in that room. And most, most farmers, um, they don't understand it. They just, even though they, they might have done Sea of Green, you know, in a smaller setup, they can't see expanding it, you know, uh, when they upscale. But I, I think that's the way to go. Yeah, maybe a watch this space sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, there, there are companies that are, that are doing it and it's just an incredible system for them because um, they, don't have, they don't have any uh, plant care during the vegetative and flowering period. Once, once they set the plant, they don't have to do anything. So as compared with, you know, people that go deleafing and all of that, and and the reason that they, you know, uh, and uh, a lot of that, even if you were deleafing, you would you wouldn't have to do as much of it this with this system as with others, and it's faster and higher yielding. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see that sort of come to life more so. If we fast forward to the other end of the grow cycle when you're harvesting, I remember a discussion I had with someone for a long time was they uh, they read your books and they were like, oh, did you know that Ed says you should, uh, you should wet trim? And I said, oh, I didn't know if I'd read that. I'd be interested to hear, you know, do you believe wet trimming is better than dry trimming? Do you fall one way or the other or do you think it's sort of situationally dependent? Well, it depends. It's situationally de dependent. Uh, certainly, it's easier to um, take your if if you've um, if you've um, it's easier to run uh, buds uh, through uh, some of the trimming machines when they're wet. Although they do have they do have other models. But the thing is, when you trim when you dry when it's dry, you have more brittleness of it of the uh, trichomes so that you're going to have more fall from trichomes when you do uh, dry trimming. Mm, yeah, there's certainly sort of pros and cons in each situation, yeah. isn't there? But, but you know, uh, uh, the way that you uh, the way that you um, uh, dry and, and cure has a significant uh, effect upon your um, the the amount of uh, terpenes that, that are present at the end, and the, the method that um, that seems to be most effective seems to be uh, uh, freeze drying. So, like the cryo machine, where the bud is dried and um, uh, they you get a higher percentage of uh, terpenes left, often double what, what you would from normal drying. Yeah, that's that's hugely become a major discussion point in sort of the the recent year or so, especially for the the bigger commercial producers. 
If we focus on the smaller home grower for the moment, I'd be interested to hear your perspective. What are some of the big mistakes you see growers making that you think are holding their cultivation back from, you know, being that really next level? Well, one thing is being too ambitious about it. I mean, uh, don't build a system that you can't take care of, that's so big that you can't take care of it, that you're always behind because you're going to lose quality. Happens to me all the time. I I have bigger eyes than my effort. So, so, you know, so you're, so, you shouldn't do what I what happens to me, especially if you know if I do an experiment and it doesn't work out, it doesn't really affect whether I have bud or not, right? So so I have a different way of looking at it on a personal level, but you shouldn't do something that's so ambitious and it has good chance of failure. It's better to do something smaller, really perfectly. That's number one. I mean, that that is number one. And then the the most important part of growing, uh, or the most important factor in growing, is the quality of the genetics. Because no matter how good a garden you have, if you don't have the genetics, you're not going to have good product. So genetics is number one. Yeah, and what a brilliant segue you've just given me because I wanted to ask you a little bit about popping seeds. Do you think specifically that it's sort of important for growers to be popping seeds and keeping the wheels churning on things, finding new clones, or do you think that there's not really an issue with people just growing the same clones repeatedly? Well, let's go back to tomatoes. So you might try new varieties and then you might grow some of the same old varieties because you like them, right? So I don't see cannabis as being different. And so I guess the next question would be, do you have any advice for any aspiring breeders out there? How might you advise them about how they go about creating their crosses or collecting their seed stock? Do you think there's any tips you might be able to offer? Tag everything and keep uh, keep immaculate records. And don't wait to tag something. Don't tag it tomorrow. When you work on the project, right then, you're not done till everything is tagged. And I would even tag things as you're doing the project. You know, like, don't wait to all, you know, don't avoid all mix-up by uh, keeping accurate records at the time that you're doing it. Don't, don't say, oh, I'll write it all out tomorrow. What's it? Was the yellow one the G4 or was it the skunk? Let's see. Was it? Yeah. Oh, and, and you know, and, and don't smoke two joints before you, you start doing it. That's some great advice. That's some great advice. As someone myself who's 
very particular about getting the lineages corrected, I can throw my weight behind that one. <laughs> so I'd be curious to know, are there any breeders who you really back the work of? Like, who are your favorite breeders? Well, uh, there, there are some local people who are uh, Mark Rayshock. I really like his stuff. Uh, Shabinsky, his, his stuff, you know, of course, everybody likes it. I just met him very briefly uh, three weeks ago, of all places, at a psilocybin conference. But he was leaving as I was coming in, so. But that was the first time I met him. Yeah, very nice. I'm a huge fan of that Gelato 41, really nice stuff. Yeah. One of the fan submitted questions as we sort of get towards the end of our questions was they were hoping you might be able to give us a little bit of the backstory on the Ortega clone that came from you, you know, like what was it like? How would you describe it? And was there any backstory behind how you found it? The Ortega clone was given to me uh, by a fellow who said he was just passing through and uh, then I never saw him again. He came up. He came up to give out varieties to different people, different varieties to different people. And a friend of mine, Doug, got another plant, uh, sort of a, another indica that was very good. And um, I don't. I think he lost that after a while, but. And, and I don't know where the Ortega is, but the J27, it came from a different group, but from that time, you know, I was saying that that's now a proprietary variety. It, it's not my proprietary. Well, it, it, it's that, you know, how there can be complexity to things, but it was originally my variety. And then after I was rated, I lost it. And then somebody gave it back to me like 20 years, just a year ago, 20 years later. And, and now it was the same plant. It was, it's a very, the, the, its quality is good, but it's a very weak plant. It's a, it, it's been a, a clone, you know, clone to clone to clone. And so um, uh, we, we just, using genetics to strengthen the plant. And I hope to get that plant onto the market soon. That's that's amazing stuff right there. It makes me wonder, what's the oldest clone that you're aware of? Well, um, I would say these J27s that I was talking about, I know that that has only been a clone plant for over 20 years. Quite some time, yeah. Yeah, more than that, probably 23, 24 years. So, yeah, I mean, it's clone to clone to clone, but it, it, yeah. But when I saw that plant, I, I recognized it immediately, you know, uh, from, from all of that time. Yeah, wow. That's beautiful to hear. I'm curious to hear, because you, you must have seen so many plants over the years, are there any old varieties that we don't see anymore that just really hold a special spot in your mind? Well, Romulan was pretty good. 
and, and you don't see that anymore. And then I had a plant. Uh, well, I mean, there are so many good plants out there now. But really what I'm looking for, you know, I mentioned that plant, those plants that could smell up a room. I'm, lo I'm looking to find those, or, those original plants or something close to them. Yeah. I, well, I, out there, just get in touch with me. <laughs> Please reach out. That, yeah, that's great. We've heard other guests talk about how the focus of breeding going forward might be to try to produce some of these thiol-rich plants, which are hypothesized to maybe be the plants that, you know, really stink up the whole room. Do, have you done any research or looked into thiol-rich plants at all? You know, uh, it's finding the terpenes that, uh, that, that contain that because it was within the terpenes. Yeah. Okay, sure. But, but uh, my most recent studies have been on um, uh, industrialization processes. So uh, growing methods that, um, that uh, can be integrated with growing methods that can be integrated with machinery to, uh, like, for instance, for harvesting. So I've been spending my time on that a little bit. I mean, one of the questions we got from one of our listeners was, are there any current grow technologies that you think are going to become outdated quite quickly or at least we'll look back on and be like, man, why were we doing it that way? Big plants. See, the reason we had big plants was because of prohibition. If you're only allowed to grow 10 plants, you want to grow the biggest 10 plants you could ever grow, right? But if you have... But if you don't have those, um, but that is totally an artifact of prohibition. So you wouldn't naturally grow big plants if that if if plant count wasn't a factor. So I think that especially with industrialization, big plants are going to go. And those first those regulations have to. Uh, be eliminated. For instance, I was to a farm called Los Sueños in Colorado. It's about 30 acres, and they're limited to something, three or 400 plants per acre. And so, um, so that was not, a, I mean, it was a very productive garden, but it's, it, there would be much more effect efficient ways of doing it yeah certainly it'll be interesting to see how those changes roll out over the coming years especially yeah, if we get the abolishment of plant numbers we've just got a few fans submitted questions before we get on to our final five which are you know pretty quick yes no type questions so one of the questions our listeners were interested in hearing is are you able to give us a bit of the backstory or at least demystify what is the real story behind durban poison Okay, so um, before the turn of the century, early on in the um, in the eighties, there was a, a coffee shop in Amsterdam called Transvaal, and you know Transvaal is one of the provinces in South Africa, and so uh, and sure enough, it was run by South Africans. 
and they were importing South African wheat. And I bought, and all of the wheat came with seed. And I bought all their varieties. And that was um, uh, planted a number of them. And this, and the Durban poison was outstanding of all of them. And that's how it happened. And I've, I've read in, um, in uh, different, um, uh, uh, different things on the internet that I've traveled to South Africa and got that and everything. And that sounds really good. And I wish I had, but I traveled to Amsterdam and went to the Transvaal. There you go. And were there ever any additional genetics mixed in with it or it's just pure South African as far as you know? Well, when I, when I presented it to the world, it was pure South African. Yeah, awesome. What a what a cool story. One of the other questions we got is sort of along the same lines and the listener asks, are there any early or modern varieties that Ed is likewise responsible for bringing sort of to the community? Well, um, um, the, the old uh, J1 and J2, but they're not really uh, available anymore. Romulan, which I... Uh, I wasn't the originator of Romulan, but um, it was an, uh, it was obscure until I started cloning it. So the, those varieties, but it's been a long time. You know, it's been uh, I haven't been doing that for twenty years, and so you know, not many people drive a twenty-year-old car. Look, I adore J One. I think it's one of the best plants ever, and I don't know why it's not still popular. Well, you know, uh, it it was it was a harder plant to grow because it had a lot of sativa in it, so it was pretty hard to grow. You, you need the best place to grow would be like Spain or Italy, something like that, outdoors. The J two was much more manageable because it had a lot of indica in it. Yeah. Okay. So, what's the J two? Is it J one crossed to an indica? No, it was uh, J2 where uh, two, in- two indicas were crossed and then they were crossed with this. See, I'd have to look at my records. I forget what they were crossed with. But it, was, um, it, it, wasn't an a- it wasn't an outstanding plant that they were crossed with. It was a plant that had certain other qualities that made it, uh, made it a valuable plant. It increased the yield. And um, the the other plant uh, had a lot of um, hidden stability in it, which made it, it sort of stabilized the J2. And it, like once it was hybridized, it was pretty uniform, that w- which was very unusual. You usually have that. Usually, you know, when the F2, you know, you, the, the you know, the F1 generation is uniform, and then the F2 generation sorts out into all kinds of ways. But the, but with the J2, it remained pretty uniform through, throughout. A little unusual. Yeah, it does sound unusual, doesn't it? Yeah. So the next question we had from one of our listeners is, where does Ed see the cannabis scene in 10 years' time? Um, I don't think people will be growing... The cannabis anymore. 
I think that they, I think that most, uh, I think that for, in or in addition to growing cannabis, they, I think a lot of the cannabinoids are going to be produced by brewing beer and that the, uh, the genes for the cannabinoids and for terpenes will be transferred to, uh, uh, to yeast. And so that, you know, people say, oh, that's terrible, but just think about it. No lights, right? Because you don't need lights. Some sugar water and a pail. And you're in business. I mean, and, and the yeast. And then seven days later, or a few days later, you, you know, the yeast have expressed the cannabinoids that uh, have been transferred to their uh, to their chromosomes. And so that's much easier than um, growing your own. I mean, growing, you, you don't have the light set up, you don't have the time set up, the space. Be a game changer, won't it? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's that's something to to look forward to seeing how that works. That'll be interesting indeed. And you know, you know, a lot of our medicines are made that way. So, why not our why not cannabis? Yeah, hugely. Everybody will have to wear a white uh, a, a, a white lab jacket. It'll definitely change the producer image. Well, it will, it will be something totally different. I mean, it will, it, well, I, I went, uh, I visited uh, Genentech a few years ago. And, you know, they have sprawling buildings and everything. But, you know, the actual place where they uh, make the, the where, where the, the actual place, the space where the, uh, the medicines are made, are ba- basically, um, uh, it, it's basically a, uh, a br- brewing, the brewing, either either bacteria or yeast, and then then they refine them. So uh, I think that we'll be able to do that as consumers. Yeah, exciting times ahead for sure. And then the big thing will be. Um, uh, uh, by the yeast spores, you know, the yeast. So it will all depend upon what yeast you get because different yeast will have different cannabinoid and terpene recipes. So... Um, they become the strains. They are the strains. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Uh, a, an off-topic sort of question we got from one of our listeners was... Could Ed tell us a little bit about what was some of the worst advice he believed to be correct for the longest time before realizing it wasn't true? I'm not going into that. <laughs> because, because somebody will hear it and they'll take that advice. So it's better to let it lie buried. There you go. Good answer. Good answer. So the listener was wondering, would Ed be able to tell us a little bit about how Sensi came to offer the Ed Rosenthal Superbud strain? Were you involved in that or was it a namesake sort of thing? Well, I actually had given them the original seeds from that many years before 
you know, before they introduced it. And so um, um, I gave them the original genetics, but they worked on it for perhaps 20 years before releasing it. And the thing about the uh, Superbud is that it comes in very early. It will come in a month earlier than your other varieties. And so, you know, in northern areas, it eliminates uh, the, the, the weather threat. Yeah, hugely advantageous for cash croppers. Yeah. And for everybody, I mean, uh, no home gardener likes to see their bud turn to mush overnight because the weather changed. So this eliminates that problem in many cases. Certainly. And so also, you know, uh, in that line, there's a jack jack hair, which is very popular. And there's a Mishka line for Mishka in France. So there are a number of people in that in that series that have been honored that way. Yeah, certainly, certainly. I mean, while we're on the topic of cash cropping or sort of in that general area, this was an interesting question. Someone was wondering, what's the most you've ever seen yielded off one plant indoor? I don't know. Uh, I... I haven't seen gigantic. I know a friend of mine used to go grow these gigantic plants indoors, and but they were sativas and they weren't yielding that much. So uh, I I haven't seen any really giant plants to to rave about, not indoors. Sure, sure, I can understand that. So the second last viewer submitted question was. They say, oh, about a year or more ago, I remembered seeing a post about Ed creating his own bagged soil blend alongside Vital Garden Supply. Is that still going ahead or is that paused for the moment? Well, it was paused for this season because of supply chain problems, but we're planning to go ahead next year. Ah, exciting. So they can still probably get it next year. Yes. Fantastic. And the final viewer submitted question before we do our final five is, how do you feel the effects of the older varieties versus the present day elite cuts fare? Many people nowadays talk about modern cannabis as having a similar sort of feeling or effect, whereas the older varieties, it's like they had their own sort of personality. Do you feel this sort of sentiment is true or do you think that there's still variance in the modern varieties. Oh, there's an incredible amount of variation in modern varieties. Yeah, I mean, um, especially if you go off the beaten track, track because there are so many breeders. There are thousands and thousands of breeders. There's no other crop that is bred the way this one is, you know, with so many people breeding it. So there's so much variation. Yeah, that's great to hear. All right. Well, that brings us to our final five quickfire questions that we ask all guests. So the first one is, what is the most memorable cannabis experience you've ever had? It might be smoking hash. It might be smoking flour. What's the one that just stands out the most in your mind? Well, I was with Neville and I was smoking some NL5 haze and it was like I was tripping on his haze. Now, um, Maybe that wouldn't have the same effect now, but it was extraordinary 
marijuana. We were at his mansion, you know, in my making. I'm so jealous. Yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. Okay. So on the other end of the spectrum, was there ever a time when everyone you knew was like, oh, you got to try this new thing. It's so good. And then you finally tried it and you were like, oh, is that it? I try to remember the good experiences. No, that's a good that's a good rule to live by. <laughs> so, next one was, if I had to drop you off on a desert island with just three strains to cultivate and to smoke for the rest of your life, which three would you take? Well, I definitely take the J twenty seven. I might take the Superbud, and I would probably. Um, I go after a sativa variety, one of the one of the uh, modern sativa varieties as well. Yeah, that's a nice little palette you've got there to mix and match. Yeah, yeah. So, was there ever a variety that you really wanted to get your hands on, but it just always eluded you, and you could never get it? The original White Widow, and there was a fellow who had it and sold the seeds to a number of different companies but but he never sold the exact pure seed so there was some variation but he had a pure variety of it and i don't know what happened to him people didn't like him because he sold the same variety to everybody exclusively very exclusive then he disappeared was his name was that ingenmar yeah, oh, right, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, you read his names on the forums, but as you said, he just completely disappeared. Right. righty. well, one for the ages. Well, on to our final question before we wrap things up for today. If you had a time machine and you could go back anywhere in time, anywhere around the world, presumably to collect some seeds or maybe even a clone, where would you go and what would you collect? Well... You know, um, the original area where a plant or an animal uh, 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 started usually has the most diversity. So I would like to, um, so I would, uh, I'd like to go back into Bhutan and, uh, a little f- further east of that, and uh, maybe 50 years ago, because um, that was before there was, uh, be- before all those uh, uh, land races were contaminated. Yeah. yeah, a brilliant answer, a brilliant answer. So, I think that just about brings us to the end of things. Um, Just a quick reminder to all of our listeners, head on over to edrosenthal.com, pick up your copy of the Cannabis Growers Handbook. Before we wrap up, were there any comments or shout-outs you wanted to make? No, this this was a great interview. Really enjoyed it. Be happy to do it again. Likewise. Thank you so much for your time. The Guru of Ganja, Ed Rosenthal, we really appreciate it. Thank you. And there we have it, friends. What would you think? Big ups, Ed Rosenthal, for taking the time to stop by. Please get on over to his site. Check out his book, The Cannabis Growers Handbook. 
Likewise, please consider supporting our phenomenal sponsors who help make the episodes happen. Seeds here now. You know them, you love them. Hottest drops. They got a new Trichome Jungles drop I just saw. There's some freebies on there for Duke. Free the Duke. So much more. Check it out. Likewise, huge shout out to Coppet Biological Systems, your number one source of beneficial predators and all technologies to keep your garden happy, healthy and free from unnecessary pathogens. Have you tried the Spidex Vital? Phenomenal. Get rid of all the spider mites in your garden. Please, guys, check it out. No one wants to see flower riddled with spider mites. Likewise, no one wants to see flower that's underperforming. Our good friends at Promix have the phenomenal mycorrhiza product, Promix Connect, which is going to help you to have a productive and very profitable harvest thanks to increased yield, increased biomass, increased growth rates, increased resin, all of the good things that Mycorrhiza brings to the game, now offered to you by a company you know and love, Promix, and with a guaranteed viable spore count, you simply cannot beat the quality of their products. If you're trying to produce the highest quality, it's a no-brainer, Promix Connect. Likewise, shout out to our buds at Charlie's Cannabis, producing the highest quality, small batch, family-owned, veteran-owned, craft cannabis if you're sick of going to dispensaries and being disappointed by the quality check out charlie's cannabis i promise guys some of the best out there you're not going to be disappointed go check them out likewise patreon gang you're the number one we love you so much thanks for all your support i hope you enjoy getting early access to this episode if anyone wants to help support the show and continue to ensure that episodes happen, please go check out patreon.com forward slash the podcast and consider signing up. Otherwise, guys, I'll see you for the next one. We'll see you.